This is David's Book Talk, bringing authors and book lovers together in a unique way since 2009. Visit us at davidsbooktalk.com and join the conversation at facebook.com slash davidsbooktalk. But first, pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy today's episode. Here's your host, David English. Hello, and welcome to David's Book Talk, and we have a very special guest, guests, I should say, plural, we have two guests today, Carolyn and Charles Todd, whose new book, new Inspector Rutledge book, is called A Fatal Lie. Boy, I love this title. And I, I, I even love the, the picture on the front. How are you guys? Well, fine. How are you? I'm, I'm, it's a dreary day here in Pennsylvania. <laughs> it's a perfect day to read a book. Absolutely perfect day. Uh, with a cup of hot chocolate. Well, that's a good idea. I wish I had some hot chocolate. <laughs> it would be perfect. <laughs> That's one of my favorite things, to sit and read with a cup of tea or a cup of hot chocolate and and just lose myself in, in a book, somebody else's book. What I what I love about this book, and I should I should mention it's out from tomorrow. Now this is this is number what in the series now? Is it I I have it twenty three? Twenty three. Yes. Twenty three. Series, yes. Uh, it was 25 years ago in August that uh, Tessa Wells came out. And what a splash that book made. Oh, so much to our surprise. And I'll tell you a funny story about that. Um, usually the second book, after a book has made that big a splash, is the hardest to write. Mm-hmm. But while we were trying to decide what to do with that book, and had sent it off to Ruth Cavan and hadn't heard anything. We were so intrigued with Rutledge as a character that just for the fun of it, we had started the second book. So by the time A Test of Wills came out and we actually knew the, the attention it was going to get, we had already finished um, Wings of Fire. They must have been excited to hear that. <laughs> uh, that was the phone call in particular because when it came out, Ruth uh, called and said, uh, we'd like to extend the contract and make it a two-book contract, and how soon can you get us the manuscript to the second book? And uh, <laughs> so funny. I talked to Caroline and... We hashed it out, and I got back to her. I said, fine. And then 20 minutes later, she called back and said, uh, can I make it a three-book contract? What we didn't realize was they sold a three-book contract to Headline in England, and they hadn't talked to us yet. Are you kidding? <laughs> they sold a book that they hadn't even talked, about, talked to you about yet? Really? Well, they, they didn't realize until... Headline, uh, was Hotter Headline at that time, they didn't realize when Hotter uh, Headline con contacted um, St. Martin's that they didn't have the rights to um, more than one book. Huh. They, they, they didn't call our editor, they called somebody in marketing and distribution and said, you know, 
set all that up, and it wasn't until sort of after the fact that Ruth became aware of it, and actually she called us right away. Mm. But uh, it was it was amusing. I bet. And Exciting, but amusing. <laughs> the nice thing, though, was because we already basically finished Wings of Fire, we didn't have that stress level because when Tess Wills came out and all the nominations and New York Times and all that, uh, it would have been very hard for us to sit down and say, oh my gosh, how are we going to top this kind of thing. But fortunately, as Caroline said, we were intrigued with the character and kept on going. There's something about Rutledge. I mean, every book I read, I just get more interested in him. And and I never get tired of him. I never get tired. Uh, you know, he, he's just such a character that's so unusual. I don't know what it is about him that, that where it just grabs me every book. And I, I still remember certain books sitting in my chair reading just enjoying it so much. I mean, that pleasure that I got out of reading some of your books. I mean, all of your books, really. But... Is it, it will never go away. I'll always remember that, and that's that's the joy of reading. You know you, that you remember those little things, and they they. You, if you said that to anybody else, they'd think you were crazy. Like, what do you mean? What is you know? What? But it's a personal thing. It's something you feel, and something we, you and I. Oh. No. Absolutely, because uh, there, there are several books that I have to admit. There's some that I've actually read so many times they've basically worn out <laughs> just because I enjoyed it so much and enjoyed that particular book and the way it worked so much that I just every so often I'd pick it up and read it again hmm. amazing I, I felt that way even when I was was young I remember going to see English Fletcher who was um, a very well-known writer of the Carolina series. Uh, they were so good, so beautifully written, and so accurate that the books were used to teach Carolina history, and uh, North Carolina history. And so I had read her books. I had finished, I guess, about six of them when she came to town on a tour. And my father took me in to meet her. And I, I was talking to her about the characters, how vivid they were and how, how alive to me they were. And then I said, and these two characters, I really enjoyed them, but they haven't been in the sub subsequent book. And without a, without a pause, she smiled and she said, oh, they're living in Devon and, and have had a wonderful life together. Hmm. As if she, too, had a connection to these people she was creating. How interesting. And that, I think that's what impressed me most about um, a writer. I've, I've, I was a fan. I met a lot of writers here and there, but it's ones who seem to love what they do and are invested in what they do, who seem to write books that I deeply care about. And so that's there are some characters uh, 
that we still think about. I think the hardest part when we get to a book is we know that there are some characters that we've grown very fond of throughout the process of writing the book, and uh, we know, because Rutledge moves on and does best, that in some cases we're sort of saying goodbye to them, but as Caroline said, you know, you, they still live on, but uh, we miss having them in our books. Absolutely. They've moved away. It's when it comes time to turn in a manuscript because not only are you letting loose of your creation, but you're also saying goodbye to some people you've gotten to know very well. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about A Fatal Liar, the new one. This is the, the newest one, and it, it just came out um, last month, right? February. February. February 16th. Right? I, I always get a kick out of those dates when they say books come out, because it's not always the date you can get it. <laughs> sometimes there's, there's a pub date, there's an on-sale date. I mean, it's so confusing sometimes. It's like, just give me the book. That's, that's all you want to say. I, I want the book, you know? That's all you care about. And But this, this and I, I'm intrigued by this, this town you mentioned that's haunted by the devil, is that I assume that's a real town. I assume that's real. Oh, the the town is real. I've been there. Um, Did you see the devil? We have, <laughs> no, he he lived up on this hill. This this sort of um, it's sort of like a um, not a mountain, which is round, but this oddly shaped, very rugged projection out of the earth that has a very jagged top. Obviously, over the centuries, the softer materials washed away and just left this thing like a stranded ship. Hmm. And um, I was visiting friends, and they took me to visit a cousin of theirs who owned the pub that we used in the book. Oh. And then... Um, while we were there, we went to see the stipper stones and the devil's chair. It's, yep. it's really amazing. It's, it's spectacular during the day, but it's very eerie during the night. And they say during the thunderstorm, this was the old version of it, that during a thunderstorm, the, the devil was, would come and sit in that chair to watch it. Oh, wow. So That's creepy. It, well, this is the wonderful thing about going there, actually being in the place we're writing about, because people will tell you things that aren't in the guidebooks or the history book or any of the other things that you can uh, have access to. Because they don't want to scare people off, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, no, it's, it's, it's a popular place. It's very close to the Long Men, which is a very... Uh, interesting part of, of Shropshire. Mm -hmm. We hadn't seen there in a rainstorm. It's funny when, I guess you would almost call them folk tales, but it's the history of England is so deep that stories have been passed down for years and years and years, word of mouth, and naturally they they get enhanced over time, but uh, they 
people that live in that area have a real connection with those stories. It's part of their identity. It's fun how, I mean, your books, the, the quality never goes down in any of your books. You know how sometimes when you read an author's books, you think, oh, well, I didn't like that one. I can't even think of any of your books I haven't enjoyed. And that's hard to say. For, I don't know that I could say it about any author. There's usually one I don't like, but I can't even remember any of yours I haven't thoroughly enjoyed and or said, you know, I don't like that one or, or you know. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you do it, but you do it well. And in this book, the more you read it, the more interesting it gets. And that's what... You have some level of responsibility, both to your characters and your readers. You know, it would be very distressing if we felt that we sat down and wrote either a a Bess or a Rutledge book and didn't give it our all. We, it, in many ways, it would be better to just say, no, I can't do it, than to fail uh, to live up to our Rutledge and Bass and our so you would. Character. So you, what you're saying to me is you would know if it was a bad book. If you, were, if you wrote the book and you, you, would, you would realize that if it were not as good quality as the other one. No, because we're always on the edge of our seat waiting to see what the readers will think and whether or not the story actually works. But if there's also the commitment of feeling that we have put everything, every ounce of effort into the book that we possibly can. Right. Which exhausts you, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) It does. But what we do, one of the secrets is we address each book separately. I mean, we don't say, oh, this is the 21st Rutledge, what do we do now? What we say is what would be intriguing to explore and how would it involve Rutledge? Um, When we wrote the Black Ascot a couple of years ago, we had seen uh, a photograph of the actual black ascot in 1910 when they thought about canceling it because the king had died. And then someone said, no, the king loves the black ascot, um, loved the ascot races. So we'll have them, the start of the social season, mm. we'll have them, but everyone will wear black. Now, if you've seen My Fair Lady or something like that, you've seen the flamboyant uh, outfits that people really love to wear to the first event in the social season. But here, everybody had those on, the ostrich feathers and the, the, the swooping hats and, and everything. But they had everything in black, the gloves, the lace, the ties. And when we saw that, we thought, well, that's too early for Rutledge. But wouldn't it be a terrific place to set a murder? And we talked about it for a while, and then we said, well, you know, it could be a cold case. And it turned out to be a terrific story for us to to explore. And this happens so many times because we, we don't say this is the 21st book. 
or the 23rd or whatever number it happens to be. The Telford Aqueduct that's on the cover, we actually rode in a narrow boat across that aqueduct and looked down into the river <laughs> from very high up, over 120 feet. Wow. And you're up on a little thing that's 12 feet wide. Now, the six feet for the boat and six feet for the horse. That's all there is. You said the pub is na is named after is is a real pub. Is is the name of the pub the same as it is in the book, or did you? Uh, no, we changed the name because I'm talking about friends. the uh, the aqueduct. Yes. The aqueduct. Yes. Exists, not the pub. Right. Well, the pub exists, but we changed the name. Yeah, I was yeah. curious whether you whether you changed the name of it or whether that was the real name of it. <laughs> Um, it, it's very close to the Miner's Arms, that, or the, the name we gave it, but we we didn't want to put a spotlight on somebody's pub and, and you know, <laughs> go ahead and have a murder set there. It's very intriguing, though, having somebody follow their death at this, and, and, and you know, and that must have, you must have been thinking that when you were there. You must have been thinking, oh, oh you don't have to think it. <laughs> you stand up there on the, that 12 foot wide. I mean, it's just a little wider than the lane that you drive down the road on. And you stand there, and there's a sheer drop on both sides. Especially and on the boat side, because if you're sitting in the boat and you look out the little the side window there, all you see is air and way down below the river you, you, you don't see because the boat is right up against the uh, fence so to speak uh, or the railing of the bridge or the aqueduct you don't all you see when you look up that window is straight down wow that's what oh, be scary is, uh, yeah and, and a mystery writer has this weird mind that says, hmm, what would happen if somebody fell? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what came first, the cart or the horse, when it comes to weird minds, but, yeah, weird <laughs> minds and mysteries go well together. <laughs> Well, I just—I wonder when you when you when you think about that, and do you have the whole story in your head? I mean, even the—this the, is a very complex story. I mean, it's not a simple story. And as you as you read more and more, it gets more and more complex, and you realize there's a lot to it, and there's a lot of characters. But how do you see all those characters before you write them? They grow out of the story. So as you outline. So you, as you're writing the story, you suddenly get ideas. Oh, we got to have this. We got to have that, and, and it just—it's like well, a, people, they people come out of the You know, when when Rutledge stops in the, the little shop there up on the uh, canal. All right, you need somebody, and you start developing. Okay, who would be in that place? What kind of person is? working there and out of that comes a character and sometimes they're minor character and then sometimes uh, I remember what was it uh, racing the devil where the little girl with the bicycle we basically brought her in briefly to 
sort of give the tenant's perspective on that area, and she hung out for the whole book. Hmm. Um, these people are are independent. They have their own way of looking at things, and all of a sudden you'll realize, oh my gosh, this person has the key to the whole story. Hmm. And you you don't know that as you're working it out because you're concentrating on so many factors and then these characters appear and they are, you begin to see what what makes them tick and once you see that you know what their what their role in the mystery is whether their role is just to make things um, uh, less simple for Rutledge or whether they really have something to say, or whether they're going to turn out to be the killer. Sometimes we don't know until 30, 40 pages before the end of a book when, who the killer when, is going to be. When Rutledge met that little girl on her bicycle, it was, it was Local a caller they developed. Mm -hmm. That... More than anything else, that wasn't what we were expecting. It was as their dialogue began to develop, they, it, we realized that there was kind of a bond there. It was an unspoken bond, but there was kind of a bond there. And uh, so, you know, you go with it. Exactly. Yeah, when she lost, the, when she lost the sixpence, that was so vital to her family and they were poor and that that was a large sum for her and as Rutledge helps her find it um, we suddenly saw something in her and then she appeared again and then she kept she kept popping up and then <laughs> towards the end she had a, a really important part that we hadn't anticipated when we first met her so now, tell me, tell me how this this makes sense. I don't know, but as we work and talk about the book, we talk about each scene before we write it. We talk about it and fit words together and people together. You begin to to have a relationship with them and understand them and. It, it's it's really a very interesting way of developing the book through them. We don't say, this person's going to do this, this person's going to do that. Oh, and here's our killer. Hmm. We look at all of them and say, who has the real reason well, that would make it a murder. right. So, so that means the reader can figure that out too. So, the reader is able to figure that out if they really are thinking the same way you are. They could figure it out too. Yeah, but most people don't because they get so involved in the story. <laughs> that's and true. That's true when I'm reading. That's true when I'm reading somebody else's book. I get so involved in in a Louise Penny or a Deborah Comby or a Lee Child or Jeffrey Deaver that. I don't think in terms of figuring out ahead of them. I'm so involved that I don't see as clearly as they do. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, because you, 
writing is nothing more than spinning a tale to entertain. And as you spin this tale, just like the people who used to sit around a, a fire in, in ancient times and tell the history of the tribe or the history of a war, uh, like the old epics, Homer and, and Beowulf and, and some of the Irish tales, these people cast a spell telling the history of their people. And after a while, when writing was, was um, uh, developed, people told it on paper. But there's, there's something about somebody telling you a story that, that seems to be magical. What? I know when my father read to me, it was just, it was like, oh, it's the most magical thing in the world. Hmm. So who were some of the fun characters to create in The Fatal Life for you? Who were, who were some of the ones you, you looked forward to each time you wrote about, you wrote what they were saying or what they were doing? No, it's, it doesn't work that way. You're looking at them, you're not favorite characters, but you're looking at... You don't have a favorite character in this book? Well, there's one, but we won't talk about that particular one. Because uh -oh. that's a clue to the whole book. Oh, but, <laughs> leave it to me to open up the door. <laughs> but the, the thing is, you you understand them more than you... There have been a couple of characters that stayed with us in a different way, but you're more intrigued by them. Uh, the lawyer intrigued us. The, the woman who uh, owned the pub was fascinating yeah. to, to explore. The, the woman who was in the quarry was, was interesting, too, because we were in that quarry. Hmm. We walked where Rutledge is walking. Hmm. So, you know, you're intrigued with these people. Mm -hmm. Now, one person I guess we should say we love, Charles, is Melinda Crawford, who is in both books. And she's a fascinating person, and we love her. Hmm. Well, we've had but she hasn't people killed anybody. <laughs> we would uh, do a spinoff with her. That's a very appealing plot. The only problem is, is right now, it's like, we just turned in the final copy edits, I mean, uh, line edits for the Rutledge coming out in really? February next year, and we're halfway through the best, which needs to be completed here very shortly, that will come out in July of next year, or so, thereabouts. So who gets more, so, who gets, uh, yeah, who gets more stressed when you're under that gun? Are you equally stressed? Well, it doesn't, the process never stops. You just keep going and going and going? Yeah, because as soon as we get best finished and start to work on the line edits uh, from the editor and then go into the copy edits and the galley proofs and all that, uh, why we're working on the next Rutledge. <laughs> because by the end of uh, this year, first of the next, we'll have to have the Rutledge ready for New York uh, for 
acknowledge that comes out in February of 2023. Right. If you get that done, we're working on this again. <laughs> you make it sound like a vicious cycle that's just where you, like a, like a merry-go-round where you can't get off. And write a few short stories. <laughs> exactly. So you you can't ever get tired of writing. It, it, it's constantly you have, you're constantly thinking of ideas. Well, it bubbles in your mind. Yeah. You never stop writing. I I think if if we ever literally stopped writing or got to a point where we couldn't be thinking about it. Uh, that would be a real problem because you're always, it's like Caroline said, we were in a, a very nice hotel in uh, uh, England and uh, just flipping through the old albums of photographs that they had set out, came across that picture of the black Oscott, and we went, oh, hmm, or... You know, we're in a museum and we see an artifact on display and it hits one of the other of us and we'll go get the other and say, come here and look at this. Now, can you see what I'm thinking here? Yeah. <laughs> You're constantly getting ideas. You're constantly being, have images and of things that you yeah. know, you can mold a story Some of them don't work out. Some of them don't work out, but yeah. a majority of them do. Sometimes if they don't work out for a book, they turn out to be perfect for a short story. Oh. You know, there's some stories, some ideas that really grow enough for a book, and there are other ideas that don't, and quite often they do lend themselves to a short story, because there's a finite space there. And it's, it's like the difference between um, Rembrandt's the, the Night Watch, which is about as big as a room, and a, a miniature that somebody paints on um, a, a small canvas. You have just so much room for that that story to grow. Well, it's it's a weird business. It's interesting because at the beginning of this book, Rutledge is given this—he's given this death to look into. But it, it almost seems like they they give it to him because they think it's not going to go anywhere. That he's never going to—it's just going to end up being an accidental death, and, and he's not going to have much to do. It's not—it's like they're trying to to. I don't know. It's like they're trying to push that on, on Rutledge. What, what's happening with that? Well, the, the main thing was that Rutledge had gotten into hot water in the book before. I won't go into any of the details. Ah. But in the book before, he had done something that really upset the yard, and he was still in disgrace. So they thought they'd send him off to Wales for this very simple murder. And that was the, the idea that we started with. What if, he, what if he goes after a very simple crime? Here's a dead man. Was it murder? Was it an accident? What happened to this man? And all he has to do, apparently, 
is identify the man and find out if he really did fall. Something very boring and yeah, something that seemingly has you know is not going to last long and it's not going to be very exciting either. And then what we wanted to do was have a story where this suddenly explodes into something that even Rutledge didn't expect. And the deeper he got into <clears throat> what was really the death of a, a nice man, how all this tangled web was there in the background contributing to his death without realizing it until somebody told the fatal lie. Hmm. And when they did, he had to die. And this, this intrigued us. And that's what we were trying to, to, to develop and put on paper. So, Why did this man have to die? And who told a fatal lie that, that sent him to his death? Hmm. Which doesn't give anything away, thank goodness. <laughs> we still no, no, no. <laughs> That's but, a, the death is at the beginning, so we know that part. But <laughs> it's a, yeah, the, the death once opens again, the door. This is a fun thing for us because we find a thread and we pull on it and see what unravels. And for us, that's what makes it so fascinating to write because in many ways, when Rutledge is called into a case, we're pretty much along for the ride. Right. Well, the question is how you get from one to the next. How do you get from it being an accident to something else? And how, where do you go from here? It's like, you know, one to one. It's like a, going from one thing to another. You know, how is it's one... It's like an onion. <laughs> you know, you start to unpeel it, and then there's another layer, and you unpeel that, and there's another layer. And you you keep following these layers to see where they will go. Do you guys always then, do you guys always title your books after you're fully done them, or do you sometimes know the title while you're writing them? Depends on the book. So every, um, everyone's different. No um, the black asset we knew, right? Yeah, because of the black But it, we uh, we just generically the book that we just finished working with for next year is called Rutledge 24. <laughs> oh, shoot. I thought you were going to tell me the real title. <laughs> well, well this now that is the it. real title. <laughs> <laughs> right now it is, right? <laughs> yeah. So you don't even know? We probably have an idea what it's going to be called. We have, well, we have an idea of what we would like. Oh, okay. But the thing is... You got different people involved in that sales and marketing and, you know, the whole uh, mechanics of working with the publisher to find the right niche and think about, you know, what kind of image should be on the cover. And you really can't get that nailed down until you finish the book. Right, and you could never, and like you could never have his name in the title of the book either. That would be, you couldn't do that after 23 books. You couldn't change the pattern that's developed for 23 books. The 
That's right. You couldn't, you, like, you couldn't make it run into his next case or something. It would be stupid. And, I mean, it wouldn't sound like it was part of the series. I mean, it's exactly. real hard. Uh, people will come up to us sometimes and say, I've just been reading this book, and it's wonderful, and I can't remember the title of it. It's set in the wintertime. You know, boom, a cold treachery. Oh, yes, that's it. That's the one. You know. <laughs> and, you, and you usually remember by that little that they tell you? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know, the author were kind of supposed to. Yeah, but I mean, 23 books, it's got to be hard to remember every plot of every one. Well, you know, you, 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 for example, when they say it was set in a blizzard, we've only used a blizzard once. Huh. And if they say the horse race, we've only used the horse race once. And if they say the mountain fog. Uh, we know exactly which one that is because that we've only we never use the same same concept again. So um, uh, it's if if they call it by what we suddenly recognize, we can put the title on it right then. What's hard is when somebody at a, an event will say. You know, on, on page 37 of A Fatal Lie, oh, I hate you, that said something, <laughs> you said something about... Was it page or 55 of the hardback, the paperback, the large print? <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the... You know, or, or something they read on their Kindle? We have no idea. There is a word, and, and, speaking of which, yeah, but go ahead, finish what you were going to say. I was just going to say, you know, we have to sort of pull it out of them because they can't remember the exact wording, but they knew we said something that intrigued them. And you sort of have to put it, pull it out of them. Right, exactly. To answer, you know, just... Just to satisfy them, because they want to be satisfied. They want to know exactly what's going on. They, I mean, everybody, when you read a book, you want to understand all the words. You want to understand everything. And I always find that, that sometimes that slows me down. It's like, I need to understand something, and if I can't understand it, I won't move on. Absolutely. And it's fr it can be frustrating, yes. I, sometimes what the things that Hamish says, I have to go back and read them just so I can understand exactly, because he has that, that heavy accent, and it's, uh, I, I try to you know, figure out what he's saying. Sometimes I'm not quite sure what he's saying fully, and then I read it again. I'm like, oh, okay, I know what it is. So I have to read it a couple well, times. Well, you think you're confused. Um, some of the books have, have been uh, translated into Turkish. Oh. Imagine what Hamish would sound like in Turkish. <laughs> you do mention you do you do mention the word blighty in in the book, which confused me. Is that some kind of disease? A uh, B L I G H T Y. Yes. Uh, oh, blighty was a name for England that was used by a lot of sailors. Oh, I think this was in this was in reference to a disease. I think some kind of disease during the war. I think. Oh, uh, you, well, you, you got a blighty ticket. Right, you got a ticket that's, home. That's the ticket home. You get hurt. I've never heard that term before. Come to the front, and you get a blighty ticket. Oh, I never never heard that. That means that means that whatever was blown up or 
caused your injuries was serious enough that the the base hospital decides that you need to go home to the surgeons in England. So you got a blighty ticket. That's what the troops called it. Hmm. I'm amazed I never. Woman, it, it it kind of feeds into the old blighty of the the old name of England. So how do you how do you guys? I mean, you, Carolyn, you say you like to read other authors. How in the world do you read other authors and concentrate on your own books? I don't know how you do it. It must be very difficult at times. Well, there are some of, books you can... Go ahead, Charles. It's kind of an escape, too, because sometimes when you're working on a book, it's helpful to just step away and think about something completely different besides cleaning the bathroom. So is no. it is it hard to go back to your own books after that? And you know, no, it isn't. No. Well, see, here's the here's the difference. Since we started, we were the first to write about World War One for many, many years, several decades. So when we started writing about World War One, and other people began to pick up the period, we made a point never to read their books about World War One, so that there would never be any bleed over accidentally. Right. Yeah, we, we love, um, what is it, Louise Penny? Oh, God, so do I. Anne Perry. Anne Perry. Mm -hmm. She's written several books about World War One, and uh, so while we enjoy her books, we steer clear the ones about World War One because... Just generically, you 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 sit bolt upright and you've got this brilliant idea, and you don't realize that that brilliant idea had its genesis in somebody else's book. Hmm. So as long as we don't read it somewhere else, we we're okay. Do you guys make pages of notes about books? I mean, do you have like? Do you keep like I know Jeffrey Deaver says he writes four or five hundred pages of notes on one book, and which is astounding when you think about it. But do you have notes? Not really. I mean, we take notes as we go along, so we can remember somebody's in name. In our research, we do. Uh, oh yeah. We, we looked in depth at both Shropshire and Northern Wales and Chester and. Uh, even before we went and visited those places again for this book. And uh, so you, you've got a lot of resource material, and you're always, you see an article about some aspect of the war or before or after the war that sticks out, and you'll go ahead and, make notes on it and send it to the other and say, I found this, and we kind of like scotch it away in a file folder somewhere to uh, refer back to. Uh, if you ask me how many pages of notes we have on that time period in England and all that, I mean, it would be in the reams. Hmm. Yeah, but we never, we don't do uh, that with a book because well, here's the thing. If I wrote a 200-page outline of the book before I began it, I would feel no excitement about reading about writing it. Hmm. Because I'd already know everything I needed to know. 
that's how my mind works and how Charles's mind works. But Jeffrey's mind works differently. He takes all of those notes and he knows how to flesh those out and keep the excitement. And He'll write a 250 page outline uh, for a book. I've taken a couple of his master classes on writing. Totally different approach, but I find it fascinating. But yeah, it, it, I wouldn't dream of telling Jeffrey Deaver he's going about it the wrong way. That's right. You're doing it wrong, Jeffrey. Start over again. Very successful. But you have to develop sort of your own style. And I was a little leery at first when Caroline was talking about not outlining because... I had come from a business background of doing training manuals and technical writing and those kinds of things in my work. And so everything I knew was Roman numeral one, A, B, C, you know. Right. Uh, and so it, it took some adjusting for me to, to let go. And I think that's the biggest difference when I talk to other authors. Um, they don't like to do that because they feel like they lose control of their character. And we're a little more on the edge and kind of say, okay, well, let's lose control and see what happens. So you, when you're writing the book, when you were writing A Fatal Lie, you didn't know who the killer was right away? No. I had no idea. Well, how do you know that when you, and I may have asked you this before, I don't remember. I can't remember every question I've ever asked you guys, but how do you know that it's going to fit in? I mean, what happens if you get to the end and then the killer just suddenly doesn't make any sense? What do you do then? Well, trust me, when you so get far. to the words of a word manuscript and you still don't know who did it, um, Ian Rankin has mentioned the same phenomenon. Uh, yeah, it can it can get pretty intense. I can imagine, but it's a it's, it sounds like it's a challenge to you guys. You actually enjoy the challenge. Oh, it that's the whole point. My husband used to read, be the proofreader because, as an engineer, he paid attention to details. You know, if you're a chemical engineer and don't pay attention to details, you have a disaster on your hands. Whereas he could pick out the the typos and and Mr. Brown is Mr. Green now, uh, little things like that. And he would say to us about halfway through the book, "I don't see how you're going to finish this." And two thirds later, you know, two thirds into the book, you know, this one really concerns me. I don't see how you're going to finish it. And then all of a sudden we would have this this awakening, so to speak. And you had that for uh, every book? Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, once in a great while, you, you have some inkling. But in um, A Test of Wills, for example, the first book, um, we had no idea who the killer was. And then... Rutledge, at one point, says to himself, he's, he's having the same problem, and he says to himself, but there's one thing I haven't done. And he goes back to dot that I and cross that T, so to speak, 
And when he does, he finds the killer is is there, you know, right there. That that puts him into the killer's uh, mind right away. And this is sort of how it must work in real life for for uh, somebody like that. But uh, somebody said to me that they wrote the ending before they wrote the book. And I can see how for some people... Authors, they'll, they'll write the end and work backwards. Uh, Jerry Healy used to do that. Yes, he did. He wrote a great book. Yes, he did. But That's he, why we're saying, you know, what works for us is not the key to success. It's just developing what works best for you. We've done a lot of panels with uh, collaborating authors. And uh, what's been so fascinating is, is every time they have a different method entirely from ours or anybody else's. They just, they found what works. T.J. Uh, Parrish, which is uh, Kelly Nichols and uh, her sister. Right. Uh, they... They have a big poster board with a timeline on it, and they cut things out of magazines and stick it on there and put sticky notes on and all that good kind of stuff. And, you know, I would be totally lost, but, hey, it works for them. <laughs> You'd be like, I can't do it this way. There's no way. <laughs> like, yeah. But when, when, did yeah. You, when did you know in a fatal light, when you were writing a fatal light, when did you know who the killer was? At what point did you know? Um... Without giving anything probably away. On, yeah, probably on the road to to somewhere. Um, I <laughs> won't say where. But on the road, it suddenly becomes clear that that something has has um, been said that that leads Rutledge to think that this might be the case. Something and it. it you know, it's it's his own eureka moment. Yeah, because it's it it um, it's not one he anticipated. He several times thinks in terms of who might have been the killer. So after writing but all the it's oh, not right. So in writing all yeah, these books, you've always cut. You've always you've never had a problem with not being able to identify a killer. There's always been something that's happened that says, oh, now we know who the killer is. Well, sometimes we have to talk about it a lot. <laughs> but in the end, we we see, for example, the, the book that we just turned in, um, we had no idea where it was going to go. But we liked a certain idea. And we just pursued it until all of a sudden, we we opened the door and there it was not literally but figuratively i just found, and the reason i'm dwelling on this so much is because i found it very fascinating as far as when an author knows who the killer is going to be and when when it actually comes to them i mean with that with the readers like you said you play along with the story you don't know till the end and sometimes you don't know at all <laughs> you're totally surprised yeah and, well, it's sort of a foot race because we want to get there before the reader does, but we want the reader, once they get there, 
to be able to think back through the book and go, you know, well, you that's never, right. You guys never have really bad endings. I mean, I've read books that were so good up until the very end, and then all of a sudden it, it just fell flat, completely flat, and didn't make any sense. And that's never happened oh. with any of your books. But I, I've experienced... No, Go ahead, I'm sorry. I can, I, can, I can relate to that because I remember years and years ago before we were uh, writers ourselves that I stuck with a book for 350 pages because it was fascinating. And the author didn't know how to end it. And it fell so flat that I thought to myself, you know... <laughs> I spent all this time to find out, and it doesn't make sense. Yeah, that that's one of the most disappointing feelings. I, I mean, I, you hope never to go through something like that. But there's a very, very famous author that where I read a book, and I love the book up until the end, and it's, and it's a name we all know, and I'm not going to name the name because I don't want to embarrass the person, but it was so humiliating to, to get to that point and, and it not be a satisfying ending. That I was yeah, a lot of times we find that with movies where they could have ended the movie 10 to 15 minutes earlier than it actually ended, but they just rambled on for the last few moments of the movie, and it's like... Or they leave it open-ended. They leave it... Yeah. Ended, you know, you didn't have to, you know... We don't have to pop champagne course and celebrate our victory after it's over. It's over. You know. People people were very upset about Tana Woods' book and uh, Tana French's book in the woods um, because it has a very it has a very interesting ending. And I, I love the book. I love all of her books. There, although there was one I didn't like, but it, most of hers I love. But that that one had a very interesting ending. It wasn't what you expected. You did. You wanted total closure, and you didn't get that total closure. So there is a disappointment there. That's not the one I was thinking about earlier, but that that book comes to mind. Oh, and I can tell you another interesting story along those lines. Um, Reginald Hill wrote a book that I wanted very much to read. I'd heard a great deal about it. Started out with the the main character being accused with very good evidence of, of being a child molester, and I don't find this particularly a, an interesting subject. So I thought, oh, you know, I I started it and it was so good, but now it's just going downhill. I went on simply because I had so much respect for for Hill, uh, a few more pages, and all of a sudden, that book turned on its ear, and from there on out, I could not put it down. Huh. And it had a good and ending? It, uh, I had a, well, it had a really stunning ending. It's called The Woodcutter. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that book. And but I I found the the very beginning um, not something that that appealed to me, but the way he turned it around it it was oh fascinating. Hmm. I've seen something similar 
in a British TV show uh, years later, but um, it, it was just fascinating. Well, you, you'd say to yourself, having a, a surprise ending in every mystery you ever write, I mean, how difficult is that to do? And yet you guys manage to do it with every book. I mean, it, and it's not easy. It's not something you say, well, this is what's going to happen, and it's going to be a big surprise. Like you said, you have to discuss it. You have to you have to talk about it. it. It doesn't just come to you when you're laying in bed or something. Well, it kind of surprises us. So you have to, t yeah. you know, what would be a surprise? What would what would what would shock the readers the most? We can't, you know. We no, can't. that's not what we think of. No, that's the difference. What we say is, out of all of this, who had the best reason? murder deep down inside this person had a was a suspect this person so you're not in secret right you're not interested in surprising the reader necessarily no the, the point is at the end it'd be the, the the proper conclusion right yeah a satisfactory of the body of the investigation that Rutledge has done and knowing the personalities of people and their interactions how, what's left? Now, who had the very best reason out of all these potentials? So in every one of your Rutledge books, if we ask ourselves that question, we should be able to come up with the answer. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, in, in theory, that should work, right? Yeah, because the, the whole, the whole, it's not, which person got the least notice in the book and then we can surprise you with? Uh, right. It's more, how does Rutledge get from A to Z and find the person who is really guilty? We, when, I, when you read a book, and one of the, the telltale things when I read mysteries is, you know, I tend to fixate on... I want it to be this person. Oh, because the, like the type of person they are, because of their looks, or because of how they act, you just, you have this gut instinct that says, boy, I hope it's him, because I'd really like to see him get, you know. Get his, yeah. <laughs> if you develop your characters well so that the reader becomes invested in the characters as much as we are, that's where it can get sticky because you have your own incentives on how you would like it to end, not necessarily the way it should end. Right, exactly. Yeah, and then it's, it's, uh, nobody who is involved in a murder case tells the truth if they're involved in, in any direct way. And and so you you have to listen to what they say, where it's going to lead, what there is about um, their lie or their secret that has the most most depth to it. Or, or you say you it's about red herrings and we don't say, okay, it's page 45, we need to set a red herring here. <laughs> exactly. No. And, and there, there are 
instructors and things that will tell you how to draw the line. You know, every so often, you know, you need an action scene here and an action scene here and a clue here and a red herring here. And because, as far as Rutledge is concerned, nothing's a red herring until he can eliminate it. Exactly. And then he starts to eliminate, and I love it, right in the middle of this book, he's like, I've, I've, I've got nowhere on this case. I've actually got nowhere on this case. And yet the reader's enjoying reading the book. <laughs> well, we're enjoying, you're, you're getting befuddled, you're, you're getting confused, you don't know where the case is going next, but we're still enjoying the book, <laughs> even though you haven't. Well, because the, 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 at that stage, when he says that, there is no clear path to an explanation for this man's death. But you can... And he can, he can see at that point that in, in spite of all the facts he's gathered, he doesn't yet have the one fact that he needs to, to go ahead, and he has to keep searching. Or maybe he has it, and maybe he has it and doesn't realize he has it. Absolutely. That too. A policeman told me that once that that he he said you never know what's going to give you the break you need. And I thought, you know, that's that's a very interesting point because a policeman in a real case doesn't have somebody like the author with an outline telling him that on page one eighty seven he's going to find the right clue. He's stumbling in the dark. But in, but in all of your books, the, the readers can find that clue. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, that's a that's a that's a given. That's that's, that's critical because otherwise you're cheating the reader. Have you ever read uh, Knox's Laws? No. It's sort of a bill of rights for readers. You know, the Chinaman, the the butler, the surprise endings, the, it's sort of a list of ten mm. rules that mystery authors should obey to avoid uh, mistreating their readers. And you, you guys... Don't put, don't put a Chinaman in the middle of a book when he serves no real purpose and he's doesn't really need to be in there in the first place, or you, especially if it's set in England. Right, or you, or you suddenly bring a character in at the very end and they turn out to be the murderer. Right. Right. And he just happened to call it the Chinaman in the sense that if you've got an English country house in when he was drawing up this list in, um, say, 1902, uh, you can't suddenly drop a character from China or Africa or the moon in there to make your explanation sound like it fits. Or just you have know, a there with no real rhyme or reason why it should be there. Yeah. That, that's the, the intent behind the Chinaman and the, the, the butler did it aspect of the laws where you either it's, it's had assumed or you bring somebody in at the last minute. You should. You could Google it. It's Knox's Laws. I'll look it up for sure. I've never heard of that before. We've never discussed that before. 
I was with Ted Whittle on a panel about Knox's laws on uh, in at Malice Domestic. The main thing is that these were written quite a long time ago. Yes, they were. Well, um, so no, no disrespect was meant to the Chinaman, <laughs> but it was an example of of the fact that you could bring something in that in 1910 you would never expect. <laughs> you know, you can't suddenly have a spaceship land in the middle of your book to explain what happened. That's how we would express it today. Right, exactly. Could you guys ever write, independently write a Rutledge? Could, like, could Carolyn write a Rutledge without you, Charles? I mean, or could you write I one with know. I couldn't answer that, but I know it, it would be very difficult because yeah, it, after 25 years of working together to suddenly say, well, I'm just going to write the next one by myself. Um, after 25 years of working out how we do it, that would be very strange. Hmm. Yeah, I would I, rather write a totally different book than to try and write a Rutledge without Caroline. Now, Caroline may say, oh, I don't need him, but <laughs> I don't think she's going to say that. <laughs> no, because, as, as Charles says, everything that he discovers in an article or a book or uh, a film, he passes on to me and vice versa. So we've got these two minds looking at at uh, ideas and things that, like, who would fall off this, this um, aqueduct? You know, it's the kind of thing that you don't know exactly what is going to trigger that. And with two people doing the research, the trigger is, is, is going to be fascinating. Mm -hmm. Because you know the other person's mind. I had no idea that I'd wind up writing with my own son. I had no idea I'd wind up writing with anybody. But it just happened that we both loved history. We both loved movies. We both loved mysteries. And when, when we started talking about this sort of thing, uh, we suddenly realized that it'd be fun to try. Right. We never expected to publish a book, but knowing what, I mean, he loved Columbo, um, I loved the Equalizer, you know, they're all the old Equalizer with yeah. Edward Woodward. Uh, I loved all these different things. So with this, we had a wide range of books and, and movies and things that that we both enjoyed and knew about. So it wasn't, I'm going to write a book with my, my son. It was, oh, you know, let's try to pool our resources and see what happens. And look what happened <laughs> 23 books later. 24, with, you got another one done, you said. So 24 books later. Yeah. It's still going yeah. strong and it still works. It's still an amazing series of books i mean every one of them is amazing i can't there's not a bad one in the whole lot there really isn't and that's true well, that's wonderful 
<laughs> I mean that sincerely. It's it's very true, and I I would tell you if, if there was a bad one, I pro- well maybe I wouldn't, <laughs> but there isn't. There really isn't any any of them that I would not recommend highly. And the I, thing, the the main thing is, somebody asked us why we were still writing Rutledge. The main thing is, in that period of time, there is so much information that you can can use in a book if you know where to find it. And the interesting thing is how much has Rutledge changed from book one all the way to book 23? How much of him, of his character has changed? Or has he remained the same? He's definitely, has got to be changed by these all these murders. Yeah, and, and, and this, this is a man who spent four years in the trenches. He saw brutality in the the bloodiest sense. And he well, also knew a, a fatal lie is in early spring of twenty of nineteen twenty one and we started the series in nineteen nineteen in this was it May or June of nineteen nineteen? June, yeah. June. Uh so we've kind of put the books back to back and of course each case has a subtle change in who he is but it's not like it's 1945 and Rutledge is still the same old guy right and what we have done if you read the books uh, you know from 1 to 23 we've shown his character in some of the things that that he does, as opposed to look, here's Rutledge. He's changed. Um, when he stops to help that twelve-year-old girl find her lost sixpence, right? He he's busy in a murder investigation. He's got a lot on his plate, but this little girl is in tears, and he stops to to help her find the sixpence. And in so doing, she says something to him that is useful, but he doesn't know that when he he stops. But it's a part of his character that he has a compassion for people. Mm-hmm. And her, her situation was such that he... Um, he steps in to help, and this is this shows you more about him than saying, you know, I am changed by this case. He yeah, is changed by what happens in the case. You, the, the army officer in him comes out when he has to be. He can be stern. Right. Yep. Uh, you know, he'll, he'll pull you up short. I mean, there was uh, one scene in, in one of the books, early books, where he was in a fight with the killer. And he, you could hear him say to himself, this has gone on long enough, and he clocks the guy. You know, it, it, he doesn't stop and, and, and debate it. He, he just clocks him. And this is 
this is part of the fact that he's been in a war. Hmm. Well, we have had well, such a wonderful conversation today. I hate to, I hate to cut it short, but we have to stop at some point. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you two this are just a problem with you, David. You know that. Uh, I know. Come to this conclusion every time we've talked. I know, and I hate to end it. I really do. It's, it's like I could talk <laughs> to you guys all night and never reach this, everything we need to talk. I mean, that, that that's fascinating to talk about. There's so much. I mean, you guys are so good at what you do. It it just floors me sometimes. And and I, you know, I'm I'm just totally fascinated by these books. And the more well, we talk, I tell you something. What's that? We we are the. Um, historical mystery guests of honor at BoucherCon in New Orleans in August. Really? Yeah, and if, if, if I keep your fingers crossed, if it can go on, right. it's something that we have looked forward to for, for some time. They, they told us and told us we couldn't talk about it until the year before. Yeah. But, you know, that's something that has been a lot to us uh, as, as writers because we, we really have poured a lot into this. And it's nice, nice to have that recognized, I, you know. Well, you deserve it. You deserve it. Your incredible body of work is just, is just amazing. I mean, it's that you can create these wonderful books and have them all be just wonderful. It's just, I mean, uh, to me, it's just, I don't know. It's really hard to believe that we've published 35 books. (laughs) Well, actually, it's 37 books that we've published over 25 years, but that's still... uh, Cracking out a lot of books, and, and you're just and you're wonderful people too. I mean, you're always the same. You're oh. always, and I don't say that arbitrarily. I I say it because it's true. I've met you both, and you're both wonderful, and it's it's never going to change because you're just that's who you are. You, you we wouldn't change the essence of yourself. You can't. I mean, you're just nice people. Well, I think. <laughs> That has been the most enjoyable part of our time as writers. We have had the opportunity to meet some truly remarkable people. Writers, fans, booksellers, reviewers. reviewers. Uh, we, we just librarians. Uh, there are people that we did a talk and... Uh, Topeka, Kansas, at the public library, and the lady that took us to the to the airport uh, went out of her way and stopped by the school building that was the center of Brown versus Board of Education. She didn't have to do that, you know, but she said, "Well, you're here, and I know you like history, so <laughs> let's go by and see the old school, which is now a museum." And, uh, you know, those memories last with you a long time, and naturally all the people that we've met in England that uh, we still stay in touch with. That's amazing. Yeah, you, you, you really, when you've come this far, 
the thing that really impresses you most is not what you've done, but the fact that there are people out there who understood it and, and loved it. That's the thing that is is shocking to us in the sense that we never anticipated or expected it, anything like this to happen, and yet other people read the books and enjoy them, and that that's still remarkable to us. I mean, it's just it's just as as wonderful. You can't you can't know until you put something like that out into the world how much it means that people really read the books and like the books and come and back look forward to them. The they they, they want to know when the next one's coming. I mean, that's got to feel great. Yeah, there were a lot three, of letters. Uh, an Irish hostage, which is the best Crawford mystery, comes out uh, July 6th. Oh. Yeah. So, never a dull moment. No. Absolutely. <laughs> You'll have to call us back and talk about Bess. Yes, absolutely. We really haven't <laughs> talked much about Bess, have we? It's always Rutledge. No, but she represented what the women were doing during the war. Right. And that's why we wanted to write about her. Well, once again, and, right, exactly. But but you've doubled your workload now. <laughs> it's like, how do they do that now that they have to do a whole other series, too, in the same year? And I, you, 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 well, we made the mistake when uh, The Walnut Tree came out. We did a Rutledge, a Best. And the walnut tree all in one year. Oh my gosh! And, you know, we will not be doing that again anytime soon. <laughs> Even though you might have other ideas, and I'm sure you do. Writers always have oh, ideas. Yeah. I mean, oh yes. Well, we've got about five series in our heads, but not really. I'd love no to hear time. about. Well, I'd love to hear about some of the other ones. We'll have to talk about some of the other ones. <laughs> but then, then people will want the book. They'll be like, "Well, wh wait a minute! Don't talk about it. Write about it." <laughs> <laughs> All we need is a little more than 24 hours a day. Hey, the book again is called... When we went into... Uh, Carolyn Marino was our editor at Harper Murrow at the time, and we were talking with her about the books and everything, and we mentioned to her our thoughts about Bess Crawford and putting together a series, and just to kind of loaded out there and the first words out of her mouth was okay how soon can I see a manuscript and we're like oh well we're just shooting the breeze here <laughs> this is just speculation we haven't you know <laughs> this is maybe you know what if or oh gosh so we've been awfully lucky yeah, but I, thanks so much for this David but you, you it's not luck it's talent you guys are, are infinitely talented and it's it, it really is a joy to read your books and that's a good way to end it <laughs> the book <laughs> yes it is the book again is called a fatal lie it's out in hardcover from morrow this has been carolyn and Char charles todd thank you so much and this has been david's book talk and we'll talk to you next time you have just enjoyed the podcast of david's book talk brought to you by your host book lover david english Please visit us at davidbooktalk.com, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to our podcast. We want to hear from you.
And we don't want you to miss our upcoming shows with top authors like Mary Higgins Clark, Patricia Cornwell, Lisa Scottolini, Jackie Collins, Nelson DeMille, Michael Connolly, Sue Grafton, Steve Martini, Dale Brown, David Baldacci.